Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode is a conversation we recorded about 10 days ago with Michael Ignatieff, talking about his experiences as a democratic politician and his hopes and his fears for democracy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more. The print magazine, the LRB app and unlimited access to that archive all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. Michael Ignatieff has been many things. He is an academic, he is a broadcaster, he is a novelist. He was the leader of the Canadian Liberal Party and he fought unsuccessfully a general election in an attempt to become Canadian Prime Minister. We're going to talk about that. He's currently the President and Rector of the Central European University, which has been involved in a very different kind of democratic struggle for intellectual freedom, and that's in contest with the Orban regime in Hungary. We're going to talk about that too. He is the author of one of the really great books about the experience of democratic politics from the inside and at the top, The book's called Fire and Ashes, and it is his account of his time as Liberal leader in Canada and of that brutal election that he fought and lost. We started our conversation with some reflections on that book, and I began by asking him, given his experiences, does he still think of himself as a politician? Truth in advertising requires me to say, especially because one of my colleagues, John McCollum, a very distinguished Canadian politician, is in the room, so I'm bound to be honest here. My career ended in complete failure. It's extremely important that everybody understands that, lest you think I'm a tremendous success. The book is about success and failure in politics, and while, while everybody says that most political careers end in failure, it's important to start by leveling with you, particularly a British audience, that didn't go so well. Um, (laughs) It was a wonderful experience, and I, particularly for any of the young students in the audience, I, I just always say the same thing, which is, if you do have an inkling to put your name on a ballot paper, please do. I mean, it's just terribly, terribly important. The ambient cynicism towards politics and politicians is directly destructive of democracy and so I just don't want anybody to hear me. I'll say some rugged things tonight but I don't want anybody to go out and hear thinking that it isn't what I felt when I went in and what I felt when I left, a vocation. And we don't talk about politics as a vocation very much. Some of students will know about Max Weber's wonderful essay on politics as a vocation delivered to students in 1919 in a a revolutionary period in Munich in which students were looking at the catastrophe of the First World War, the destruction of the German Empire, and he was saying to them, um, he was reiterating his faith in, 
in a democratic politics. And it's an extremely moving essay if you've never read it because this is uh, in the birth pangs of the Weimar period. He's under no illusions about how hard and brutal and difficult democratic politics is, but he calls those German students to put their names on ballots, organize for what they believe in, and it's poignant precisely because the context is so arduous, and the context in our time is arduous as well. And it's, it's arduous for 26 reasons. I'll only pick about two of them. A lot of what politics is is deeply counterintuitive. I found myself extremely ill-equipped to make the transition from academic life to politics. I thought if I was asked a question, I had to answer it. That was... Which that was tonight is a good thing. You know, I, that, was, that was a surprise. I didn't understand, you know, that the simple thing about you, you don't answer the question you've been asked, you answer the question you want to be asked, you know, all this kind of stuff. I didn't understand that it was a performance. You have to fully inhabit the role. This is a key thing. You can't pretend to be a politician. You have to be psychically all in. It's a performance. My successor, the Prime Minister of Canada, fully inhabits his role, and I say that in genuine praise. He is a politician from the moment he gets up to the moment he goes to sleep. I don't know what he does. I've never seen him off stage, but that's what you have to be. You have to inhabit the role fully. That's a tremendous psychic strain. Nobody actually wants to be an actor 24-7, but you have to be. Another thing that I think you have to be is you have to attack in ways that are very, take a long time to understand. I was once accused in my political career by a fellow competitor for high office that I was somehow soft on torture. I believed that, you know, you could torture people. Than which nothing is further than the truth. But I replied like an academic to that accusation. I said, well, have you read page 456? It, when in fact what you have to do is say, how dare you make this accusation? It unfits you for public office, right? Flip it, the jujitsu flip, very hard to do. Um, and the final thing, and then I'll shut up, is, is one of the reasons that I so admire politicians is the great ones have what Isaiah Berlin called a sense of reality, a sense of what's possible and what's not possible. It's a kind of intuitive, instinctive sense of what a room like this believes, wants to hear, hopes for. When you've seen a great one do that, I've seen a few do that, it's just an astounding ability, which I, to be sure, did not have. Uh, or I wouldn't be here. You know. uh, <laughs> um, and, and Isaiah Berlin said of Bismarck, the thing about Bismarck was that he just had a sense of what was possible in the frame of Germany in 1880 that no one else could come close to. And as academics, we have almost no way of understanding what this sense of reality is. But it's intuitive. And the great ones, Franklin Delano Roosevelt would be another example, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, patrician from New York, is elected in March 1933, and what I mean by sense of reality is the thing he understands is the country is frightened. That's all you need to know. 
it's frightened. And then he says the immortal words, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. One of the greatest moments in democratic politics. It, it gives me the shivers when I see that speech over again. That's what I mean by a sense of reality. A sense that that is the issue, is fear. And so we're down on politicians, but, but the great ones have these capacities and, um, and they have that sense of the vocation that goes with those capacities. So you mentioned the corrosive cynicism, and in Fire and Ashes you say that it's a kind of Weberian theme that the democratic politician has to walk between the two pitfalls. On the one side is cynicism, and on the other side is innocence. You can definitely be too innocent for democratic politics as well as being too cynical. And I often think about that, and I don't know if this is cynical of me to ask this question, or maybe it's innocent of me to ask this question, but it feels like in politics now, in 2020, the space between cynicism and innocence is narrower or narrowing. That space, you could call it reality, or there is a lot of cynicism, and there is also quite a lot of innocence about democratic politics. Do you sense it's narrowing, or is that just an illusion from the outside? <laughs> My sense of that question is a question about you, about the democratic audience in a way. And I do think there is a enormous cynicism and it has a corrosive effect on what the public begins to expect from politicians. Because one of the things that a democratic audience expects from politicians is precisely innocence in the sense of hope. All hope is, in a certain way, innocent. All promises are innocent of the difficulties that you know, stand in the way of their accomplishment. And when a politician's completely cynical, he chimes well with the audience, but he simultaneously disappoints the audience because they want something other than cynicism. They want something other than calculation. They want daring as well. Uh, the daring that goes with innocence, the, the willingness to leap into the unknown with, here's where we're going, folks. I don't quite know how to go there, but believe me, we can do it, you know? And, and that's a thing that is being squeezed out. The squeeze is reducing expectations of politicians, but it's also reducing the expectations that democratic citizens have of their politicians, and that's a pretty toxic downward spiral and it's at least possible that when i talked about the innocence one way it's possible to be innocent about democratic politics is to think it's easier than it is and that it's just a question of wanting the thing and willing it and possibly even electing it but the hard grind is what happens between elections and these things at least potentially go together the cynicism produces a desire for the transcendent politician or political moment where you sort of move to the sunlit uplands. Yeah. And democratic politics, your book captures it. The sunlit uplands aren't ever quite there. It's tough all the way through. Yeah, and, and let me chose a, a controversial example that may get the audience stirred up and good, good. pissed off at me. I'm very struck by the immense difficulty that liberal democratic politics is ha having handling the issue of climate change. It seems like the issue that just could break democratic politics because there's so many veto points in democratic politics. A good democratic system gives everybody voice and gives interests the capacity to 
to stop stuff. And yet there's this overwhelming sense, particularly in the generations behind me, that this has just got to be done. And there's some sense, and this here's where I get impatient, a sense that normal democratic politics can't deal with this problem. The one thing I see, and this is just maybe a phenomenon of age, is that the literacy of a democratic public about climate change is, is climbing vertically. In my lifetime, the popular consciousness of how the environment operates has been totally transformed since 1970, which would be my starting point. And the other interesting thing to me is if you do Here's a tiny bit of social science, which God, I hope, is accurate. If you compare political systems, democratic, autocratic, authoritarian, whatever, and look at their CO2 emissions, the interesting paradox is that the societies that have stopped the rate of increase of CO2 emissions are liberal democratic societies. So there's a, there's a disconnect here. Most people passionately concerned about the environment think that the system is bloody well not working. It's not working fast enough, it's not doing it. But the place where emissions are leveling off are liberal democratic societies that painfully, incrementally, by changing incentives, market incentives, political incentives, tax regimes, are making the energy conversion towards away from fossil intensive fuel production. And that seems to me a, a hopeful and important vindication that all the stuff you don't like about democracy, which is that it's slow, it's deliberative, it's argumentative, the big oil companies have too much power, blah, blah, blah. We're still making the transition. I get on the train to Vienna, which is my current life, and I see a forest of wind production which is a little country called Austria saying we can't depend on nuclear power, we can't depend on fossil fuels, and I think we're getting there. But the final point I'd make about this is that there's a weird way, and this is not a knock on a 16-year-old Swedish teenager, and we need her, but there's a kind of sense in which she argues as if climate change is something that has to stop politics, when in fact climate change is precisely the kind of thing where you need more politics, I say this feelingly as a Canadian because in Canada, here's the kind of climate change problem you've got in Canada. The energy producing, we produce almost as much oil and natural gas as Saudi Arabia, and, we, and it's produced in a couple of provinces. In the energy consuming provinces, they get the oil from the energy producing. The two parts of the country are diametrically opposed on this crucial issue. If you produce energy, your kids' jobs depend on it, you depend on it, you have one take on this. If you're in an energy-consuming country, you want, let's get out of oil as fast as we can. A national political system has to adjudicate that. It has to take it slowly. It has to engage in a whole set of hypocrisies, like we can do both, pump gas and get to carbon neutrality. The levels of hypocrisy about this in Canada in the democratic system are sickening, but they're the necessary hypocrisy of a society trying to hold itself together in the middle of the biggest energy transition in the history of the country, right? And if you don't believe that that's a process you have to go through, 
If you just think, oh, well, just forget about Alberta and Saskatchewan, forget about the energy producing, right? Because the mortal threat is so great, we just read out a whole constituency of our country from consideration, you get away from democracy. Um, and, and all this stuff is going to get tougher and tougher and tougher for every society. But if you don't believe that it's in democracy that we adjudicate those conflicts and everybody gets less than they want, we'll blow the place up. I want to come on in a second to your new life in Vienna and the life that you were leading in Budapest. And I don't want to be the cynic this evening when I say one thing that's mildly cynical, which is that one of the ways in which liberal democracies have leveled off their emissions is to export a lot of the uh, fossil fuel intensive industrial production. And there is about liberal democracy sometimes an out of sight, out of mind quality. Mm -hmm. um, and to get people to see it in the round, so there's the trade-offs within Canada or anywhere else, that challenge, which is the 21st century challenge, to get liberal democracies to see, for want of a better phrase, that we're all in this together, which means it's not enough just to kind of tidy up your own backyard if you're exporting the problem. Absolutely. That is a huge challenge, isn't it, for liberal democracy? To, to, well, it's, to a, see it's it? a challenge, and, and again, we're wrestling with this. The legitimacy of democratic systems, the capacity the responsibilities of democratic systems are cued to national political systems, nation states. The loyalties, the tears, the emotions that drive democracy are national. Uh, nationalism is one of the profoundest and most explosive, but also one of the most positive political emotions. But it, it has this effect that with a climate crisis, a global crisis, one that escapes the boundaries of these national units, it becomes extremely easy for us to export waste. Why are the bottles turning up in Pitcairn Island? They're not coming out of our waste systems. It's because we've exported them to countries with deficient waste systems, and then it shows up. So the problem when you said we're all in it together the problem is the we now has become global and we simply have no global institutions capable of capturing and expressing that and converting it into democratic will and these climate change conferences the most recent one in madrid get more and more and more depressing but i don't see any other way to get this done than to do it nation by nation, frankly, and then work on the demonstration effects of good practice. We're all learning from the damn Scandinavians, the bloody per perfect people who get everything right. Well, we're learning from them. It's better to, you know, we... It's better to learn from them than not to learn from yeah, them. Yeah, better to learn from them than not. Uh, Canada virtue signals like crazy about its climate change and is not very good, actually. But I don't... I'm a disbeliever in cosmopolitan global governance. I just, I'm sorry, I just, of course we should go to Glasgow, we should try and make it work. We'd, anything is better than nothing, but I just think climate change is going to be fixed country by country by country in small incremental steps that will never be fast enough for anybody. But I do think we'll, we'll avert catastrophe. So in the last few years, as President Rector of the Central European University, you really have been on the front line of a particular 
democratic contest in Hungary with the Orban government. What has it taught you about democracy? So your experiences in Canada taught you some things about liberal democratic system from the inside, but this is something different. Well, I think I've learned in Hungary that you can live in a society that looks like a democracy, sounds like a democracy, walks and talks like a democracy, feels like a free society. Those of you who've been to Budapest, you're not in a tyranny. They're not cops on the corner. You can go into a, you know, you're not in a bar. People aren't listening. You know, there's no security apparatus around. There is a parliament, big fancy place. There are laws passed. There are courts. But it's not free. This is something new in the 21st century, it seems to me. Democracies that have the simulacra, the institutional form of democracy, and they're completely hollowed out. 85% of the media controlled by the people you sold the media off to. The courts completely neutered so that in, and then he gets to throw a university out of the country, which is what he's done in, in our case, um, using law. So it looks like law, it talks like law, it sounds like law, it's passed by a parliament in one week, but it's a complete, total political arbitrariness dressed up as law. So you evacuate the rule of law, you evacuate the independent of the constitutional courts, you, you basically sell off the press to the highest bidder, and you maintain a facade of democracy within the European Union. And then the other thing you learn, I'm sorry to be so negative about this, Europe does absolutely nothing. I'm a Remainer, not a Brexiteer in your big debate, but God Almighty, you see the ways in which Europe has watched this. And by Europe, you mean European institutions the or European, national governments? The European, both the European institutions and the national governments have sat there and watched. I've had more speeches and pious declarations in favor of academic freedom than I've had hot dinners, but I've not had one European politician say, you get four billion euros of structural subsidy in your country, Mr. Orban. That number is going to go down to three unless we get rule of law, academic freedom, and freedom of the press, right? If you're a member of this club, there's some conditions of membership. What is very disturbing about Europe is this is a case where the European project has allowed the emergence of something that is democratic in form but completely undemocratic in substance. And this should give concern to everybody because it, it shows how you can lose a democracy. The facade remains the same and behind it authoritarianism consolidates and nobody from the outside does a damn thing about it. That's the bad story. Now the good story, just to, because I, I'm an incurable optimist, in the fall, out of nowhere, an opposition formation alliance won the mayor's office in Budapest. So I don't think this is eternal. I don't think it foreshadows the conversion of Eastern Europe to authoritarian single-party states, but it does, I think it ought to alarm us that you can have institutions that look democratic and behind them they're a completely hollow facade. 
that's the specter that I think ought to concern everybody. It's sometimes said of those kind of simulacrum regimes that the hardest thing to control are elections, actually. Elections are really hard to fix, um, especially these days. The kind of, it doesn't need sort of scrutineers on the ground. It's just, it is inherently unpredictable. And even more oppressive regimes and Orban's regime have been surprised that elections don't go the way that they expect. Indeed. So but, in that range of institutions, is the ability of the people periodically to surprise the regime the bit that still would count for you as, as a functioning democracy? Yes. Uh, Istanbul gave Erdogan a surprise. Budapest gave Orban a surprise. It is... Although both men are still there. Both men are still there. It's where the source of hope is. But... The more disturbing aspect of this is the use of democracy to restrict democracy. That is, Orban constantly says, I have democratic legitimacy, and he does. The elections are gerrymandered and played with, but he does win elections. He then uses the elections to redraw the Constitution, eliminate the independence of the Constitutional Court, um, uh, take over control of the media, so that you use democratic legitimacy to eventually evacuate democracy of its substance. And I, I think one of the, the reasons this is of concern is that, and is directly relevant to us, is that if you, if you ask Canadians or you ask the British, I guess, what is democracy? They say it's, it's that election thing we do every four years. With the um, old referendum thrown in. And, <laughs> and <laughs> yes, wasn't that a success? So, um, the... Uh, the thing that I felt as a practicing politician is that support for democracy as free elections is much stronger than support for democracy as independence of the judiciary, free universities, free institutions, free media. Since everybody hates the media, people are not terribly particular about defending freedom of the media. So that there's some there's some real systemic weaknesses, I think, in popular support for democracy. Support for electoral freedoms are much stronger than support for what are called classically the liberal constitutional freedoms, all of which are designed to protect the public from abuse of power. And what the Orban story tells you is that the constituency that supports an independent Supreme Court is much, much weaker than I think optimistic liberals like myself ever suspected. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A few years ago, I wrote an article which was given the headline, The U.S. is not Hungary, after the election of Donald Trump, <laughs> because there are people who think that the United States is heading down that route. And... From then till now, I'm slightly worried about that headline, <laughs> uh, whether it will come back to bite me and indeed the United States. 
how do you see it? Because, but it's not speculate yet about what might happen in November, but we're nearly through a full term. Is it, is it on that path? I think that our sense of how democracy is is tremendously outcome dependent. If we don't like Donald Trump, then we very quickly leap to saying democracy is in trouble. That doesn't necessarily follow. We just don't like the, the result. If we think British democracy is in trouble, we, it's because we wish everybody had voted remain. I've never thought, just parenthetically, to, and maybe I'm wrong here, watching the Brexit debate, I will get to Trump, but watching the Brexit debate, I thought this is a democratic society having the most fundamental debate about its identity and its direction that I've seen in my lifetime in any democratic society. Nobody died. The institutions functioned. So they delivered, they delivered a result. It's a result that many people don't like. But tell me that that's a symptom of a democratic decadence in Britain. I just don't buy it. Converting by analogy to Trump, we have the same problem. He's poison. Okay, fine. But he won, an, he won a democratic election. And I even think the impeachment... Here's where I have to swallow hardest, because I think he, the, the offense that he committed crosses the barrier of an impeachable offense. But there were good constitutional reasons to think it didn't cross the barrier. That's one of the painful things about democracy. It can't be the case that every Republican who voted for his acquittal simply thought, King Donald is sitting on me and I won't win in November, so I got to vote. Some people did conscientiously think, quite a few, that uh, this was a serious error of judgment, but you don't impeach a president, president for errors of judgment. It's a coincidence that they were all Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> the raw power here plays massively. If you ask me what I think is a a structural problem about American democracy that is genuinely worrying. It's not Trump. It's the gerrymandering of electoral districts. The fact that there is 84, 85% of it, or sometimes close to 90% of incumbents simply get reelected because they, and some of the gerrymandering has important racial impacts which are disgraceful. So gerrymandering is a real structural problem with democracy. That is, representative democracy is not functioning as it should. Problem one. Problem two, here speaking as a Canadian, the doctrine, constitutional doctrine that money is speech is absolutely pernicious. It's devastatingly dangerous for politics. Money is not speech in politics. Money is power in politics. In anybody who loves democracy, wants to control the power of money. In my, in Canada, for all its failings, everybody who gave me a dime in my political career from beginning to end is on a website, in some government website. You can see their name and address. Every cent I ever got in public. That's how it should be. So that's fixable. The third problem, which I think is structural about American democracy, is the Electoral College now. I just think it was there for very good reasons to counterbalance the strength of populous states and urban districts. But it's now become, it's having extremely perverse long-term effects which delegitimize the whole system to those who vote for a candidate and have essentially 
have the vote in Iowa or North Dakota or Montana count for five times what it counts in in New York or California. Th those are real problems and those have to be fixed and if they aren't fixed then you could start talking about a structural crisis in democracy that could spiral down to an authoritarian direction. But I don't it's not Trump that bothers me. It's actually in the pipework of the system that I feel alarm. One way to frame it is to ask the question, is it possible to imagine in the United States a university suffering the fate that your university suffered in Hungary? And indeed, universities have suffered in Turkey. I mean, the, the shutting down of entire universities, the arresting of the academic staff. And, and for now, the United States seems like a completely different kind of country from that. And the, the institutional checks in the way of that, including in the media too. Donald Trump would love to shut down the New York Times. Yes. But Donald Trump cannot shut down the New York Times. Donald Trump, no doubt, would quite like to shut down Harvard University. Yes. But Donald Trump cannot shut down. And the leap that it would take to imagine an America in which that's possible still seems to me, I can't, I can't do it. Yes. But maybe I'm being innocent. I think that's a good skill-testing question. I just think these institutions are too powerful, too robust. Too to, rich, some of them. <laughs> some of them too rich. I mean, you can also flip that. Some, there's corporate power in the United States that is, I think, dangerous to democracy. But in the ensemble, this is a, a country of extremely robust free institutions. A, B, a federal system that distributes power in an extremely important way. The, some of the constitutional pipework of that country is, is extremely admirable because uh, it produces great mayors, it produces great governors, and it distributes power out. The power of the presidency is potentially a cancerous growth on that system, but it was precisely the power of the presidency, the constitutional system was designed to limit and check. And I I don't want to be a fatuous optimist, but I, I think it can even check Donald Trump. I want to mention the report that we published a couple of weeks ago, so it got sufficient coverage that you noticed it, and you emailed me and said <laughs> you thought it was a bad way for us to start the Center for the Future of Democracy. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't say that. No, you didn't say that. You, okay. yeah, but I, I think we should talk about it. So I'm going to ask you two questions about it. So one relates to Hungary, and we discussed it a couple of weeks ago with Roberto, we discussed it on Talking Politics, if anyone heard that episode. Hungary scores really well on people's satisfaction with democracy, which is a reason for thinking that satisfaction with democracy is maybe not necessarily the question to ask. And, and we're very aware that there are many other questions you could ask that elicit very different kinds of responses. And one reason to be nervous about that outcome is that, of course, you could satisfy people in a democracy by satisfying the majority quite robustly by treating the minority really badly or various minorities really badly. And Hungary might be a version of that. Do you think Hungarians being satisfied, more satisfied with their democracy than anywhere apart maybe from Scandinavia, says anything or not about the fate of that democracy or its robustness? I think the upside would be that they have a memory of tyranny. They have a memory of real tyranny. So you ask them, are you satisfied with democracy? They're not making an evaluation of how democracy works for them right now. They're making a historical comparison when they didn't have any bloody democracy at all. So that would be one. But that then gives you problems with your survey in the sense that the history here is, is determinative of people's attitudes. I think that would be one thing. 
I think the second thing it might check, the, the second methodological problem in, in relation to Hungary is, as I said, what they think is democracy is the fact that they vote every four years and despite all the gerrymandering and tomfoolery of the government, they are still relatively free and fair elections and they're not attending to and seeing the, the absolutely systemic evisceration of the contre-pouvoir, the, the counterbalancing institutions that make any society free. So, so is it also possible, after all, there are real material benefits being distributed to the majority oh, in absolutely. Hungary. And th these elections are meaningful events in the sense that when their guy wins, a lot of people are better off as a result. Oh, yes, and I don't, I don't want to duck that. About a third to a half of the Hungarian people feel they're living the best years of their lives. And they give Viktor Orban some of the benefits. So there's, there's no question. I don't want to... That my difficulty with the, the survey, the headline, for those who don't know, is that David's guys have come up with a really sophisticated... One of them uh, take and answer world, <laughs> survey of attitudes towards democracy. Every single data set in the world has been hoovered into this thing and put through a kind of fantastically sophisticated uh, process. And it indicates that discontent and unease about democracy is rising everywhere, is kind of the headline. Um, my difficulty with that is that Discontent with democracy is in a very uncertain relation to the performance of democratic institutions. What you think about a democracy bears no necessary connection with what it's actually doing for you. And another way to think about that is that if you think about what democratic politics is, it's what we're doing now, it's discourse, it's talk. And we've been running down democracy for 10 years. Every time we gather in public as Democrats, we say, God, it's not going very well. Erdogan, Putin, Xi Jinping, Orban, and on and on. And look at this Brexit thing, and look at Trump, and on and on. And we talk ourselves into a kind of sense of... And this, this I think, has discursive effects on the numbers. I mean, people start thinking, well... You know, David Runciman, he's a big deal. He thinks democracy in trouble, so it must be true. I mean... It's important it's not to... It's my fault. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's your it is, fault. It is my fault. I thought it, you were saying it, that. I was, I was, that's where I was going. No, my, my point is that the uh, democracy is a discursive phenomenon and, and the opinion we have of democracy is less dependent on the performance of these institutions than we suppose. And your survey appears to say, well... If people are registering discontent with democracy, it indicates that democracy has failed to deal with X and Y. For example, there's a spike during the financial crisis of 2008. People are more discontented with democracy. Well, then if you ask yourself, was that financial crisis a crisis of democracy exactly? Or was it a crisis of a deregulated capitalist system running amok? and then ask a subsequent question, how did democratic societies react to that crisis? And on any comparative measure, the policy response of every democratic society to that crisis was extraordinarily robust. I mean, that, I was in politics at that time. We just threw money into the system, 
pumped it full and it was tough on lots of people. I don't want to minimize that. But the idea that democracy failed in 2008 doesn't seem to me to correspond what democracy actually did in that crisis. So I, I'm just saying one thing, and part of the point of the report was to provoke exactly these kinds of arguments because that data set can be read in lots of different ways. There are also signs in it that the early indications of dissatisfaction preceded the financial crisis, that people were beginning to sense in 2004, 2005, 2006, that these democratic institutions were not working for them. And as you say, it's a complex relation. So people are talking down democracy, but some of the politicians who are talking it down are picking up, as you said at the beginning, the people who can read a room are picking up on that. And actually, this data set is interesting because it, it does give you, because it's over a broad period, it does give you a sense of these rhythms. And it's not all one way. That's true. That's true. I just um, was so struck when I was on the doorstep going door to door that it's not that people are stupid it, it, it i'm not i'm not talking down a democratic electorate but the relationship between what they feel about how the system is serving them and anything and and what they then tell you about their actual behavior is often very surprising they complain about the canadian system and their old age pension check arrives punctually every when they go and see a, a member of parliament their call is returned instantly. When they go to emergency, they get seen. You know, the performance indicators of democratic operation and people's opinion about how democracy is doing are not the same thing at all. Is all I'm trying to, yeah. I'm trying to say. Now, I don't want to. I've done enough to sound like a complacent old fool already. But let me just, in case people think I'm completely blind to the realities. I was in a democratic assembly. I was elected to the House of Commons in two federal elections. And there you do see something that I think ought to concern any Democrat, which is the emptying out of the legislatures of our democratic societies. MPs are semi-powerless. They're under the authority of a prime minister or a leader of the opposition, as I was. Their capacity to represent people is very imperfect and very I often felt as an MP the pathos of people coming to my surgeries and saying, do something, you know, help me with this or help me with that. And we, we conscientiously tried to help people. But they had an image of what an, a member of parliament could do that was absolutely discordant with the reality of what we actually could do. And that's not good. And British politicians will say exactly the same thing. British that's, members of parliament. That's, that's a real problem. That's something that... But if you then ask, what do you do to fix that? And this is a tale told against myself. The reason that MPs are disempowered in a Canadian system, and I suspect in a British system, is that the leaders of parties bloody don't want them to have any independence at all. We've got to keep them on message. We've got to get power. Shut up, face the front, and you might be a minister. And that then asphyxiates their capacity to stand up and say, well, in Luton, guys, this just isn't working. Or, you know, in, in Barnsley, it's terrible. Or in Huddersfield, the EU means nothing to us. Or whatever the re representative function is, is suppressed by party discipline. This is, I'm trying to identify structural problems. This is a structural problem. When you were leader of a national party, did you feel that... So you saw, you'd seen the problem as a member of parliament, and then you became a leader. Yeah. Did it just grip you this need to get them all facing the same way? How did it Absolutely. manifest in you? Absolutely. Shut up and face the front. That was... 
So one feature of contemporary democracy, democracy now, and it's one of the themes of the new centre, the thing that we want to look at, is the generational divide, as it's often called. And it's very pronounced in elections around the world. It was true in the Irish election just now, that difference in how people voted Sinn Féin relative to the two other main parties. In the UK general election, people under the age of 30 would have elected Corbyn in a landslide. People over the age of 65, the Tories would have won every seat in the country, bar about three. It's there with Trump support. You know, Bernie Sanders slightly confuses the issue because he's an old guy, but his support is young people. And I think it's a really big potential problem. And it cuts also to the Greta Thunberg case because there is a rhetoric around this, which is the generational divide is actually a manifestation of a sense of betrayal on the part of young people. That They're going to live in the world that the older elected politicians, elected by older people, are creating and that they are being essentially left to fend in a future that they can't control themselves. Do well, you sense that? And if you do, I mean, I think one of the really big questions is what is the kind of politics that we're looking for that can bridge this divide? Because it's, it's relatively new. I mean, young people and old people have always voted differently, thought differently, and so on. But to see a democratic politics so starkly divided on generational grounds. Oh, I think there's n no question it's a, an issue. And I, I feel the generational thing when I think back to being 21 bliss was in it in that dawn to be alive and I don't tell you when it was it but it's in the 60s I simply never thought about my economic future I simply assumed that I would just, there were jobs out there I'd be fine I never lived with the existential anxieties that my daughter my daughter lives and works in London as a young professional in the theater as impermanent and temporary a business as there can be and she I admire her enormously, but there's a generational divide in our family on that issue, and I think it may be in many families in this in this room. So that's unquestioned, it, because it means that it's it's a real difference of interests. Where is the economic security? Where is my route up the ladder to ownership of a home? Where is my capacity to start and maintain a family? Really basic stuff is come unstuck, and that for millions of young people, and that, that's just a real issue. There's another issue, though, that needs to be said, which has to do with youth participation in politics. In the election of 2007 in Canada, one in five young Canadians under the age of 25 bothered to vote. So you have this kind of double effect, a sense of, the system doesn't work for us, and I'm not going to vote. And that seems to me, I mean, any mobilization for Bernie, I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a liberal. I'm not going to vote for Bernie, right? But the mobilization, the passion for Bernie, the involvement of young people, terrific. It's when a sense that the system has failed, coupled with I'm not even going to show up, that I think you then get something that could qualify as a systemic democratic crisis. And yet it is striking that many of the older voters who showed out to vote for Trump also believed that the system had failed, but they voted. Yes, so and that's why, that's why the, the age segmentation of the electorate is a source of sort of moral sorrow in some sense, partly for the reason you described, that is, the old folks are not having such a great time either, and they've got a lot to 
lot to talk about with a younger generation. And, and you can't get a politics of change if the age segmentation doesn't break down and people stop caricaturing each other and generations reach across and, and talk and do what families have to do to keep the generational divide becoming an abyss. This is very human, human stuff. And here, democracy is reflecting deep fractures that go right into the core of our family life. And a great politics, a democratic politics, says, let's talk about this. Let's get this out into the open. Let's, let's try and make sure that we don't silo ourselves off into incompatible agendas in age segments and then do something that young people often do which is to say if we just wait long enough these guys are going to die all and the house is going to be ours that That's was part of the second brexit referendum <laughs> argument <laughs> i mean it yeah. was it was being openly made yeah, but i hated that argument mm. i hated it was that a bad argument. argument and it didn't work as well hated. very last question and you can give as short an answer as you want to come back to fire and ashes so in that book you leave politics as it were hopeful and you say you find the hope not in parliament and not in a grand national election but in the the encounters that democratic politicians have in rooms face to face with people so we're 10 years on there's probably less face to face i mean there's more electronically mediated interaction less face to face uh, they're still face-to-face, -face, though. I mean, in Iowa, they've just done it, and then it was mediated by an app that didn't work. Is that where the hope is still for you, in the, the experience that people have when they get together in a, in a room? I'd have two, two things to say about that. First, being in democratic politics was the most moving, troubling, overwhelming experience of my life. I didn't do it very well, but God Almighty, the thing about it is that you walk into a room and you've never been with those kind of people in your life. You've never been in a Sikh temple. You've never sat down fully, wore the funny thing on your head. You've never eaten that kind of food. You've never got up and gone to a, a Chinese community. You've never flown up north to the Arctic Circle and, and talked to, the, to Inuit. You've never talked to people who've been abused in residential schools in our country, Aboriginal Canadians. You've never talked to uh, unilingual francophones. It brought home to me the extreme experiential segmentation of academic life. In, in a way, the thing about politics is that you meet the whole bloody world. And it just, it just, you've got to learn to talk differently. You've got to learn to, above all, listen differently. You've got to learn to shut up. I haven't done much shutting up tonight, but believe me, that's what you learn. So, and the face-to-face -face is unforgettable. I've learned more about the practical politics of getting anything done from that than anything I did in my life. And that's why I just hope younger people and older people in the room will put their name on ballots and try it at the council level, at the whatever level you adverted to the, the digital side. Because here's the thing that I also discovered. In politics, and I'm sure my Canadian colleague will, will agree, he was in politics even longer than I am. In five and a half years, I must have shaken 35,000 hands. Right? I mean, just, it's press the flesh, you know, eyeball to eyeball. You're making a contact. And 35,000 people, I can count on the fingers of one hand the occasions when it was unpleasant. They wouldn't vote for you. They sometimes told you they weren't going to vote for you. 
but they understood what you were doing. You were a democratic politician seeking their vote, and they sort of thought, yeah, that's, that's, what, he, that's what he does. That's okay. He's coming to me because he wants my vote. Fine. Never abusive, never unpleasant. Then you go to the social media. And my wife said, the, the one way you're going to get through the next five years is never look at your social media feed. Because, and this is a, I think, a structural issue in democracy, but it's a structural issue in our social life. Social media is a, it's the disinhibition effect. In face-to-face -face encounters with other human beings, there's a whole set of social cues about things we can and cannot say to each other. And some of it's hypocritical, some of it's, you know, and the British are masters of this whole vocabulary of kind of avoidance and politeness. Hypocrisy is and, our national you know, you, you know, you, you, don't, you never quite know where you are with the Brits, but it's, it's one of the, re no, no I, I mean without irony, it's one of the reasons it's a wonderful country, because it has immensely complicated face-to-face -face modalities of interaction, which a foreigner like me has spent 20 years just trying to understand. But in social media, you know, no one knows you're a dog, so you can just, the ferocity, the, the truly horrible nature of those interactions, I think should concern any person who believes that democracy is not just a set of procedures, it's a way of life. It's a way of life in which we're all implicated. And, and some of the rules of civility that are absolutely natural to a gathering, a physical gathering like this, disappear in cyberspace. They just disappear. And that is a real concern to me about the future of democracy. And I don't want to be completely negative because in my pocket, here we have it, we have the equivalent of the Library of Alexandria in the pocket of every single person on the planet. Well, this is just amazing and it has the possibility to transform and enrich democratic debate. But the disinhibiting effect and then the uh, the ways in which social media feeds you only get the news you want to read, the filter bubble problem. I think those are actual serious problems. Michael Ignatieff was here to help launch the new Centre for the Future of Democracy. Our other launch event was the podcast we did a few weeks ago with Roberto Foa, the report about confidence in democracy around the world. There's more details of all that in our show notes, and you can find out about Michael's book, Fire and Ashes. The next podcast will be in our regular slot, and it will be with me and Helen talking about Johnson, Cummings, Brexit, and all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.